Hello, this is Glenda Taylor. Welcome to the One and All Wisdom Podcast. Today, I want to continue my recent focus in these podcasts on the challenge of reconciling divisions in our culture, why this is so complicated and often discouraging. Years ago, I was given the gift of attending a women's peace conference in Scotland. While there, I was approached by a woman who had been involved in reconciliation efforts in some of the most war-torn and divided parts of the world. She spoke with me about the possibility of my joining their organization to travel to hot spots in the world to help in this healing process. I was deeply honored and certainly considered it, but I still had responsibilities at home in my own personal life that I didn't think I could abandon. But I've been haunted ever since with that offer, that challenge, that I should help in whatever way I can toward reconciliation of differences. And I've always remembered one of the things that woman said to us at that conference about how, in her experience at reconciliation efforts, it was so important for people on all sides of any divide to listen to each other's personal stories to hear and witness each other's humanity as they try to sort out the truth of whatever happened and why. That makes me think of psychologist Carl Jung's statement that, quote, ultimate truth, if there be such a thing, demands the concert of many voices, many voices, disparate stories. I agree. And as I have said here in previous podcasts, If we are to move closer to reconciliation in our country, to achieve the positive changes we hope for, including equity, inclusion, respect for diversity, and so forth, we must realize, as actor Robert Redford once wrote in the Harvard Business Review, quote, people need the chance to see how much agreement is possible. People need the chance to see how much agreement is possible. For us to find that agreement, we must, I think, become more aware of the complexities of our own stories, the layers and layers of varied family experiences and traditions, even the history of the place, the land and geography we come from, all of which has shaped us, informing our opinions, judgments, and actions, even when we are not consciously aware of it. In my long lifetime, I've come to see that nothing is only what it first appears to be, and everything benefits from a second look, or many looks for that matter. So again, I've challenged myself to look deeply into the stories that have shaped my life, to become more self-aware of my own history, so that I may participate more wisely in the reconciliation process so badly needed in our time. And I have challenged myself to share some of these stories with you, not to make some point or to be on one side of some argument, but rather to demonstrate how important it is to sit with any strong opinions or judgments long enough for complexity to reveal itself, showing us how many-sided all things are, so that when we speak or act, we do so in the best possible way, with our actions informed by a deeper understanding and likely a certain amount of humility, compassion, and empathy so necessary for reconciliation.
so here for you briefly is a personal story of my own that illustrates the point i think about complexity i begin with a place since i firmly believe that the natural environment we live in shapes us and our attitudes the place i grew up in and the remarkable complexity of its history certainly shaped me most of my family for seven generations before me has lived in or near the deep woods of rural East Texas, in the edge of what is now called the Big Thicket, along one or another of the creeks that feed into the Sabine River not long before it empties into the Gulf of Mexico. When my family first came to the area on one side or the other of the Sabine in the late 1700s and early 1800s, that muddy river and the surrounding swampy bottomlands and the mostly untracked virgin forest for miles and miles around was truly a wilderness. Along the river in those days, in and out of the bayous and sloughs, might move twelve-foot-long alligators, many kinds of poisonous snakes, snapping turtles the size of a washtub, and in the forest there were wild boars, wolves, panthers, and the occasional bear. The bank of the river, especially at twilight, was always a mysterious place, partially obscured, as it often was, by mist rising off the murky water, or by fog drifting mysteriously through the dangling Spanish moss trailing wetly from tree branches. One walked carefully there, sometimes struggling to pull one's boots up out of the sucking mud, while watching always for a rare but dangerous patch of quicksand, hardly distinguishable from the rest of the muck and mire underfoot. A bit back away from the river, one's way might also be slowed or even blocked by stands of river cane or yopon so thickly grown and entangled as to be impenetrable. There were intertwined briars of all kinds along with wild grapevines, thick ropes of coral vine, twisting strands of yellow jasmine, poison ivy, and occasionally wisteria spreading up and over everything. All of this grew so thickly that, as one early writer said, quote, the earliest travelers that ventured into that wild region had to fairly hew and hack their way. But it was a rich and beautiful place, too. Further inland from the river and the swamps, the underbrush thinned out as one moved under the shadowed canopy of an ancient uncut virgin forest of towering trees, cypress, oak, cedar, pine, pecan, elm, birch, sweet gum, and more, with an understory of Mayhaw, wild plum, holly, red bud, dogwood, magnolia, sweet bay, all blooming gloriously in springtime. In short, this whole area had an extraordinary amount of complex biodiversity thickly packed into every square foot of land, bursting with abundant life and beauty and possibility, while also being, on the other hand, a place where it was all too easy to get lost or killed. Or simply disappear. Both things were true and had to be reconciled by people who came to live there. Over the years, many people of one kind or another came through the area. Spanish missionaries, French soldiers, African-American runaways, and many individuals, including one of my early relatives, who came there to hide out. People considered to be outlaws according to the differing ruling opinions of either Spain, France, Mexico, the new United States, or later the Confederacy or the Union. 
The Spanish had known of this area and claimed it for Spain as early as the 1500s, when the Sabine River, the Rio de Sabanas, as it began appearing on Spanish maps. But exploration of the area proved challenging. A Spanish official in 1691 declared in his diary that, quote, no rational person has ever seen a worse place. That was partly because of the wildness of the place as I've described it, and also, the Spanish said, because of the fierce opposition of the indigenous people, particularly the coastal Caroncoa, rumored to be cannibalistic. Various other indigenous tribes were in the area, too. They had long lived there, hunted there, and occasionally fought each other there. But for a long time, the Spanish weren't too concerned about the natives there, or about that area. Although Spain laid claim to it, and everything else, from Florida all the way west, as far as anyone could imagine. And for a few years, a few Spanish and the indigenous people were the only ones in the area along the Sabine River. The Spanish interest in the whole area increased dramatically, however, when in 1683, the Frenchman La Salle, with a few other men, came by boat from Canada down the Mississippi River to the Gulf of Mexico, and then claimed all land along that great river for France, calling it Louisiana, in honor of Louis Fourteenth, then King of France. There was no western border declared by La Salle, so the Sabine River area, which was west of the Mississippi, was just assumed to be part of France's claim. The Spanish government, however, vigorously objected, and the next hundred years or so of history in the area became as entangled and complicated as the wilderness I've been describing. The French, despite Spanish claims in 1718, built a fort and laid out a plan for a city they called New Orleans. The population of the area rapidly increased, with people coming from all directions and all traditions. It was a race for dominance, political and otherwise. French settlers were imported by the French government to settle and seal the French claim to the place. Spanish settlers came for the same reason. Soon many British came, too, floating down the Mississippi or traveling overland from the British colonies on the east coast of the continent including, for example, Quakers from New York and Delaware escaping persecution, and Acadians from Canada, who in 1755 were forcibly moved to Louisiana by the British government. Those Acadians, incidentally, give us a good example of the subtle and not-so-subtle complexities of our origin story. The Acadians were originally from France, but they had been in Canada for a hundred years by the time the British government took charge and decided to expel them from Canada. In that hundred years, their time in Canada and the land itself and the experiences they had there had changed the Acadians. Even their spoken language was altered somewhat. And once they were forcefully exported to Louisiana by the British, it soon became apparent that they were quite distinct and different from the other French in Louisiana, newly arrived directly from France. Immediately, prejudice, inequity, and grievances arose, not only between the two varieties of French settlers, but between them and everybody else, the great mix of nationalities pouring into the area. This included a black population, slave and free, and the mulatto, Métis, and various other versions of mixed-up race, religion, culture, etc. There was in the area, in short, if you will, another sort of biodiversity, a great, wonderful, diverse, complex, melting pot, multiculture. 
but also a hotbed of difficulties, prejudice, cultural and legal complications that have never completely gone away. Reconciliation of differences was, and still is, the order of the day. The extraordinary changing and complex history that in part governed my ancestors' destiny during that time is given in thumbnail in the following long quote written by a historian. Quote, In 1762, the French king Louis XV, exhausted by long wars and deriving no income from this far western French colony, Louisiana, ceded New Orleans and all the territory west of the Mississippi River to his cousin, King Charles III of Spain. But when Spain, in about 20 years, found the territory of Louisiana so costly a burden, in 1781, Spain gladly receded it back to France. But France was now in the clutches of Napoleon I and delirious with revolution, was contending in battle with all the powers of Europe. The movement of France's army required money, and so, in another 20 years, in 1803, France sold Louisiana to the United States. The United States, having assumed possession of this purchased territory, Congress in 1804, in order, and I, I quote my writer again here directly, to ensure the people a stable government, and as soon as possible, reconcile the different races of the people living there to the new order of affairs, Mr. Jefferson, then President of the United States, appointed W.C.C. Claiborne Governor of the Territory of Orléans. Claiborne administering the government, my writer says, so firmly and wisely that in a great measure the conflicting interests and prejudices of the several nationalities became reconciled and quieted. The result of Governor Claiborne's wise administration of public affairs was to rapidly induce immigration to the territory, and by 1812, Louisiana was admitted as a state of the United States, end quote. It was not, however, all as simply reconciled and quieted as that cheery report makes it sound. There was much military conflict between Spain and the United States for control all along the Mississippi River settlements and in Louisiana and in Florida. It wasn't until 1821 that some of the Gulf Coast territory to the west of Florida was recognized by Spain as officially being part of the United States, at least as far west as the Sabine River, where Spain still claimed ownership, at least until in that same year of 1821, Mexico broke away from Spain gained its independence, and began to contest more vigorously the boundaries of the territory right up to the Sabine River and beyond. Meanwhile, Andrew Jackson, now governor of the state of Louisiana, had his eye on somehow getting that wild and mostly unsettled area of Texas for the United States. In short, people in the area had so many confusing and constantly changing legal and cultural allegiances that this complex history marked all of them in dramatic ways. For instance, records show that early on in the history of the region, some of my ancestors newly arrived in coastal Louisiana from the southern part of the new United States were required by the Spanish in authority in Louisiana then to participate in the local Spanish militia and to have a musket ready for use, yes, against the United States. Conflicting loyalties, conflicting legal demands, proving difficult and unfortunate. 
On the other hand, later, on the good side of things, the Battle of New Orleans in the War of 1812 saw soldiers from Tennessee and Kentucky fighting side by side with Creoles, Acadians, free men of color, Choctaw Indians, among others. U.S. history considers that battle a great military victory and considers it, quote, the United States' most multi-ethnic endeavor up to that time. Melting pot possible. But the shifting question of which set of laws, French, Spanish, Mexican, U.S., whatever, people were to follow at any given time, the ambiguity of the legal status of land ownership, are there required military obligation to this or that national interest in the frequent dust-ups of local battle, along with the personal jousting for position and power, and that elusive idea of freedom amidst much prejudice and displacement of peoples? Perhaps all this shaped attitudes toward the notion of law itself, making it seem a sometime thing, not immutable, depending on a complicated questioning of who's in charge and who's in the right. And I have to choose and maybe make up my own mind, regardless of the law, about many things. And right at that critical juncture, 1821, my family's history in Texas begins. Let me tell you in brief about only one couple of my family's complicated characters, born into and out of this complex history, shaped by this land and its mix of opportunity and danger. I only began to hear any of this particular story when I was in my 40s, and I still don't have all the information about it. It's very mystery makes it important to me. I've had differing feelings about it, as you will hear. Blessing Game Harvey, my great, 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 great-grandfather, who, along with many others of my ancestors, had come to live in Louisiana from the southern United States around 1800, had fought in Andrew Jackson's War of 1812, and was, by 1821, a prosperous landowner and successful land speculator in Louisiana. When he decided to leave everything behind and to head to that wilderness I described, Mexican Tejas, across the Sabine River, I have often imagined this grandfather of mine as he swam his horse across that muddy Sabine and made his way through the thickets and woods, following any shadowed deer trail in the dense forest. He probably rode for a day or two inland from the river until he found the Cherokee village he was searching for because a friend of his, another white man he had known and had dealings with in Louisiana, Old Man Prather, had gone ahead of him and now lived with the Cherokee. Grandfather Harvey lived in that Cherokee village for a couple of years, even helped run a sort of trading post there. I imagined him there, how remarkable he was, isolated from all he had previously known, but there by choice, and apparently being able to be at peace and at home with the native people he lived with. I like that part of his story, recorded in written records and from much oral history of the area. Eventually, he picked out for himself some land and built a homestead, the land's title for a league of land and more claimed and certified by the Mexican government, adjacent to what is now still called Harvey's Creek, named after him. Incidentally, much of what was Grandfather Harvey's land is now underwater, under one of the man-made lakes put in place in the 1950s to stop the periodic flooding of communities and towns downstream. At the time of the building of the dam, I was a youngster, and I didn't even know of my great-grandfather Harvey's existence. I did know that some people in my family were for the building of a dam. Some opposed it. 
and I was glad of it, having had floodwaters reach near our family's doorstep more than once, with water moccasins washed up along with other debris into our yard. But like it or not, the dam was built, the lake was created, and later those who had opposed the whole thing came to love to boat and fish and swim in that lake. Many years later, I learned about Blassing Game Harvey and how what had been his land back in the 1800s was submerged in those lake waters of progress. I've been told that his gravestone and that of his relatives were moved somewhere else before the graves themselves were flooded. That certainly feels odd for me to think about when I stand by that lake. Where Harvey's Creek still flows into the lake, there's a state-owned campground, Harvey's Creek Campground. And when I stand there and think about that grandfather, I remember what I've learned about him, and I feel all sorts of other things because his story gets complicated. I haven't learned much about his early life, except that he and his two brothers were somewhat educated according to the standards of the time. Copies of some of the letters he wrote later in life to his children exist and are thoughtful and intelligent. He owned and traded land and property in Louisiana. Perhaps he simply came to Texas to acquire more property, hoping to buy and sell land there, or maybe not. He did acquire several leagues of land in East Texas, one of which was bounty land he got for his military service in the Texas Revolutionary War against Mexico in the 1830s. Interestingly, as a side note here where I'm concerned, that league of bounty land he sold since it was not near the land he had already long occupied. It turns out that that bounty land that he sold was, is, located about five miles as the crow flies from the very land my husband and I, all unknowing, purchased in the 1980s, which I call her Springs. Mind you, at the time we bought that land, we were living in California, and I had not yet ever heard of Blasingay Marvey. Coincidence? I guess. Maybe. Anyway, to get on with his story, it is believed in the Harvey family that what motivated Blasingame Harvey to leave what appears to have been a prosperous life in Louisiana territory and venture into the Texas wilderness was some sort of falling out between him and his wife, Nancy Scoggins Bowie Harvey. Nancy Scoggins was born in Mississippi Territory, where her parents had a Spanish land grant and a plantation along the Natchez Trace, just on the eastern side of the Mississippi River. Records show them involved in a local church they had helped to establish. They actively participated in local affairs there before moving on across the Mississippi River into Louisiana Territory. There, Nancy Scoggins was married. Before she married my grandfather Harvey, she was married to a nephew of the famous Jim Bowie of Bowie Knife and later Texas Alamo fame. When I first learned that, well, I was proud. I was related by marriage through my fourth great-grandmother to the famous Jim Bowie. Several of the Bowies were witnesses and administrators of Nancy's father's will. Nancy's husband, John Bowie, and Jim Bowie before he came to Texas, and the rest of the Bowie family were adventurous, colorful, and highly successful land speculators in the newly available territories of Louisiana and Mississippi. But Nancy appears in many records under her own name, buying and selling land, city lots, and other things, and apparently being a highly successful businesswoman before and after her marriages. I was so proud of her when I learned all that, when I looked at all the records of her dealings recorded by the French, Spanish, Mexican, and United States officials. That pride in her was challenged, though, 
as I examined more and more records. I learned that the Bowie's and Nancy's husband, John, and even Nancy, possibly, financed their land deals largely by trading in slaves, many of which they bought from Jean Lafitte near Galveston in Spanish Texas on the eastern side of the Sabine River. Lafitte, as you may know, the pirate Lafitte, captured black slaves from ships at sea, brought them to Galveston Bay, where Lafitte was headquartered on Galveston Island, and the captured slaves were kept in secluded pens in that tangled wilderness on the Texas side of the Sabine River, where buyers could come secretly from Louisiana Territory to purchase slaves from Lafitte without paying taxes in New Orleans and without regard for any complexities of legal or territorial jurisdiction or restriction. Slavery had already been abolished in Spain in 1811, but was of course still practiced regardless of the law. And slavery was still legal in the United States. And so Lafitte's slave trade was as ambiguous in the Texas and Louisiana area as everything else was. I have amazingly even read accounts of Lafitte's goodness how he freed some slaves, how he treated them better than the Spanish or Portuguese he captured them from, and so forth. But then there are those slave pens in that deeply thicketed, almost impenetrable, politically contested no-man's land of East Texas that I have described, where more and more of my people would come to live, and where more than a hundred years later I would live and grow up. Now, the Bowie's, it turns out, had an agreement with Jean Lafitte to buy some of his slaves in Texas and transport them for sale elsewhere. Jim Bowie's brother said in his memoir that just in the three years between 1817 and 1820 alone, the Bowie's bought 1,500 African slaves from Jean Lafitte at Galveston. So my grandmother, Nancy Scoggins, before she married Blassingame Harvey, had married into this Bowie family there in Louisiana. When her husband John Bowie died young, leaving Nancy with several young children and some slaves, she remained active herself in buying and trading land, city lots, and occasionally slaves. We read in the records, for example, that, quote, Widow Nancy Scoggins Bowie sold Negro man Tom and his wife to John Harrison for $1,500. About a year after her Bowie husband's death, Nancy married Blassingame Harvey. His brother, Charles Harvey, is also on record as buying and selling not only land, but also slaves during that period. As we read, for example, in the records of Catahoula Parish, quote, 1819, sale of slaves to Charles B. Harvey for $800, a Negro woman named Venus, about 20 years old, and later, a Negro girl named Mary, purchased by the said Harvey at public sale. I see no record of Blassingame Harvey buying any slaves in Louisiana. Doesn't mean it didn't happen. I just haven't seen a record of it. There is a record of his being a witness at a slave sale, however. I don't know what happened between him and Nancy, but possibly they had some kind of falling out, and he left for Texas in that critical year of 1821 and all of their children, including the children from her marriage to John Bowie, soon followed Harvey to Texas and lived with him there. Nancy died not too long thereafter. I've seen no mention of Blassingame Harvey having had any interaction with Jim Bowie when Bowie also came to Texas, married a Spanish-Mexican lady, 
and then later fought and died at the Alamo. Perhaps Bowie and my grandfather Harvey met there at Harvey's homestead. Perhaps not. Nor is there any record of Blassingame Game Harvey's having slaves once he got to Texas. I don't think he did. But there would not have been any record, slavery having been officially abolished by both the Spanish and Mexican governments by then. And Texas was still under Mexican rule when Harvey got there. And so it would have been illegal for him or anyone else in Texas at the time to have slaves. Now, let me interrupt this story long enough to say that, like every other child educated in the Texas public school system back in my day, I was required to take plenty of Texas history and taught to be proud of the state's rich heritage and given to understand about Texas' various bragging rights. And I became, for sure, a proud Texan. But nobody during my years in school mentioned that random fact, that both Mexico and Spain along with various other nations, including Britain, France, and others, all had abolished slavery, more or less peacefully, 40 years and more before the United States did so, after a bloody civil war contesting the issue. Nor was it mentioned when I was in public school that as soon as Texans fought and won their revolutionary war against Mexico, slavery was quickly made legal in the new Republic of Texas. Nor was I taught that before and after Texas entered the Union and became a state of the United States, the famous Underground Railroad, that secret network that helped runaway slaves escape, ran south through Texas secretly and dangerously toward freedom in Mexico. Just sitting with those significant bits of information, when I did learn about them, expanded even further my awareness of my state's complex heritage and my own. I cannot remember a time when I did not abhor the notion of slavery. So I'm not happy to admit that in several places in my family tree, besides the Harveys and the Bowies, there are other slave owners. Not all of my ancestors had slaves, of course. Some way back in the 1600s in Virginia were Quakers and were opposed to slavery in any form, as of course I am. That Quaker anti-slavery mentality is right there alongside the slaveholding mentality, surviving in my family's history. How do I account for that? In my heritage, in my lineage, in me. My ancestors, like everyone else, were complex people, no doubt. Would I have liked them, been like them, if I had been alive back then? Would I have been ashamed or afraid of them or indifferent toward them? How has this history, unknown to me though it was until I was in my 40s, how has it nonetheless affected me, been part of my unconscious cultural DNA? How does it make it more comprehensible to me that while I was active in the civil rights movement back in the 60s, I know now that one of my relatives was a member of the Ku Klux Klan? What does it all mean about reconciliation along the racial divide in my country today? And what is my part in it now? Blassingame Harvey and Nancy Scoggins Bowie Harvey are not the only complex characters in my family tree. They're all sorts. Despite my mother's once warning me about researching our genealogy, saying that I might just find a bunch of outlaws, I have found all kinds of amazing people. My folks have been involved in the complicated history of this land from the founding of Jamestown in the 1600s to the very present with some of my grandchildren living today very near Lafitte's fame, Galveston Island. In my lineage, there were Protestant and Quaker and Catholic 
And there was, back in Europe, a great-great-great-great-great-grandmother burned at the stake, accused of being a witch. There were mariners and ship's captains who brought the early settlers to Jamestown. There were indentured servants, and there were wealthy profit-seeking entrepreneurs. There were patriots and protesters. There were Native Americans as well as people from almost every European nation. There was one very well-respected and prominent judge whose daughter married a man who, before his father-in-law the judge had time to have any say in the matter, was killed by a hurriedly assembled posse after a knife fight brought on by a political dispute. I share a mutual ancestor with Al Gore, and I'm related by marriage to George Washington. Many of my people fought bravely in the American Revolutionary War, but one of my great-great-grandfathers was accused by the British after the war for having counterfeited British currency for his own profit. And there's the whole complex history of Texas as a republic and the Civil War, with some of my relatives on either side of that issue, and there's the painful aspects of Reconstruction as it happened in Texas, and on and on it goes. I am a product of this complex, complicated heritage. As interwoven between dark and light as the thickets were and still are along the Sabine River, there is room for pride or shame, guilt or innocence, moral strength, or instead that desperate need just to get along somehow, just to survive, however ambiguous the circumstances. Approve of them or not, these are all my kinfolks. They are my relatives. I am made up of them all somehow. Without any one of them, I would not be here. Knowing that, knowing about them, and acknowledging their existence, their experiences, their complexity, makes it somehow difficult for me to hold arrogant or self-righteous opinions about other people around me, about anybody else, or about their heritage, however different or even objectionable they may seem to me on the surface. Anybody who does enough genealogy soon decides that just about everybody is related to everybody else in some way, if only through our mutual engagement in the mysteries and complexities of life itself. You begin to realize that we're all kinfolks, like it or not. And that awareness, I think, is the key that opens the way to reconciliation of differences in our world. And that is why now in this podcast, as I've done for many years, encourage people to discover and tell their stories so that there is a loosening of the bindings of hatred and bigotry and fear and retaliation and all the rest. Other than that, I am not now offering here any easy solutions. I'm simply hoping that the story I've just shared about me, about the complexity of the history of a place and about my ancestors, is a good example of the need to avoid snap and easy judgments, the need always to put things in a broad historical context, and always, even as we pursue actively what we consider to be right and good and just and fair, to keep an open and forgiving mind about others who disagree with us or oppose us. I know that I'll never know the whole story about my grandfather Harvey or anyone else or anything but nonetheless, I may attempt to be present to and recognize the complexity, the paradoxical mystery of it, and to honor my inner connection with any and all of it. So, 
as I approach the idea of a reconciliation of differences in our country today, as I look back on this and other aspects of our country's long history, and as I look forward with compassion and humility, I hope, I somehow find hope that we can all more perfectly attune ourselves to a sense of common and enduring humanity, that we can see how much we do agree. This is my hope, and that's enough for today's podcast. Join me again next time for another different take on some other subject on the One and All Wisdom podcast. You will find the references that I have quoted during this podcast at the oneandallwisdom.com website. This is Glenda Taylor. Thank you for listening.